we're now going to turn our attention to God's Word, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. If you take your copy of God's Word, uh, we're going to dive in. I want to welcome you back to the series that we're in in Hebrews that proves to us that Jesus is better, that life in Jesus is better, because Jesus is the only way that we can have from God what we really need, which is the full forgiveness of our sin so that we can have fellowship with a holy God. The only way that unholy people can have fellowship with a holy God is if the holy God made some way for their sins to be truly, fully, and finally forgiven, and he has done that through the blood of Jesus. Would you hear now God's word, Hebrews chapter 8, the entire chapter. Now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he, meaning Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for. See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, again meaning Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant And I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. And I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This morning, I believe we see in this text two truths that we need to take note of. The first in verses 1 through 5, to have peace with God, which is what Hebrews is showing us, it would be foolish to retreat from Jesus because He's the only way we can have peace and fellowship with God. So to have peace with God, we've got to draw near to God through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus, for two reasons. One, Jesus serves as high priest, not in an earthly tabernacle, but in the heavenly presence of God, the forever eternal presence of God. 
That's what we see in verses 1 through 5. And secondly, Jesus secures the promises of the new and forever covenant. The covenant that God promised through the prophet Jeremiah has come to fruition through Jesus Christ. Why would you run away from a better covenant with better promises? These are the things the author of Hebrews wants us to see this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that the truths of your word would go down deep into our lives and into our minds and into our hearts today and that we would, God, that, that we would be able to, to pay close attention to your word this morning. And God, that as, that as we endeavor to, to lean in and to press in into what you have for us, God, that you would show us where our lives perhaps uh, do not reflect the freeing and glorious truth of, of the gospel. God, that there is full forgiveness and pardon for those who throw themselves upon the mercies that you have for them in Christ. God, we, we ask that today would be a day that you speak to your people and make us more like Jesus as a result of having been here. And we ask that you would do it for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, I want you to see this morning, church, that only Jesus serves as high priest in the heavenly presence of God. He's not in an earthly tabernacle. In verse 1, we've been reading for seven chapters, and in verse 1, the author says, now the main point in what has been said is this. That makes me feel good as a pastor, because sometimes it takes me a while to get to my main point. Some of you are like, what, would you just get to it? Well, he's, he went for seven chapters before he got to his main point, all right? And his main point is what? His main point is that Jesus is the priest that we need. You don't need a priest in the tabernacle or in the temple. You need a priest in the heavenlies, and that priest is Jesus. He's the sort of priest that we need. He's the priest like Melchizedek. In fact, he's a greater king, reigning over all things. He's at the right hand of God, just as was promised of him in Psalm 110, verse 1. <clears throat> but he's not only a king, he's a priest. He's a priest who advocates for those who trust in him, and he's advocating in the very presence of God, not a, a temporary localized presence of God here on earth, but in the heavenly presence of God. He's there, he's there at the right hand of majesty, which means he is glorious, he is sovereign over all things. Jesus is right there in the heavens interceding on behalf of those who trust in him. Jesus doesn't serve in a temporary tabernacle, but in the true tabernacle, verse 2, the enduring and heavenly presence of God, which means that Jesus is ministering in the place that, that never ends. This means the earthly tabernacle and the temple pointed forward to the heavenly tabernacle that Jesus was going to enter upon his death and his resurrection. The tabernacle like the Levitical priesthood that functioned within it, all those sacrifices that took place there, was always to be a temporary arrangement pointing to something greater. The true tabernacle or the sanctuary of the presence of God exists in the heavens forever. The communion, therefore, of a, of a priest with God for a moment on behalf of people in an earthly tabernacle was a temporary arrangement until God would make a way for the entire earth to be the sanctuary of God's presence. The day when heaven would meet earth and God's people would dwell with God for 
forever and ever. Because Jesus serves as our great high priest in God's heavenly presence, we have forever access to God through him. Did you know that? Because Jesus is the priest in the heavenlies, you can commune with God wherever you are. You don't have to run down to the local tabernacle. You don't have to run into the sanctuary. You don't have to come here to pray to be near to God. You can be near to God in your car. Jesus secures ongoing access to God for those who belong to him by faith because he serves in the forever presence of God. He's a better priest serving in a better permanent place. To illustrate how much better the priesthood of Jesus is, there's an interesting argument that's a bit complicated that's made in verse, verses 3 through 5. And I want to try, to try to break it down and make it simple. He says that the priesthood of Jesus, if Jesus were to come back to earth, he wouldn't even be a priest in the tabernacle. His priesthood is exercised in the heavenly presence of God. His ministry is there in the heavens, and he's already come and sacrificed himself on earth once for all. And that offering that he made has been received and recognized by God in the heavens. It's been accepted in the true tabernacle in the heavens. So if Jesus were down here, is what he's saying, Jesus would not be a high priest going into the tabernacle or to the temple to offer daily gifts to God according to the law because Jesus has already come and fulfilled everything the law anticipated. He is the sacrifice. All those sacrifices were pointing forward to a day that Jesus would come and he would be the sacrifice and he would enter into the heavenly presence of God and he would say, the law is finished. I have come. I have buried it in, and I have covered it and they are covered by my blood. I am raised and I am interceding for them. I am the sacrifice. So the Levitical priesthood and the tabernacle that some who were reading the book of Hebrews for the first time. They wanted to go back to the law of Moses. He's like, why would you do that? You have Jesus in the heavens on your behalf. His sacrifice is accepted once for all. What in the world are you thinking? We know the tabernacle was temporary because God warned Moses in Exodus 25 verse 40 to not deviate from the heavenly pattern, verse 5, that God revealed to him on Mount Sinai. In other words, this, this does not mean there's a literal tent in the heavens, right? But there's something about the presence of God that is so ornate and so detailed and so meticulous and so glorious that God on Mount Sinai says to Moses, because the people failed to enter the promised land and now we've entered into the old covenant and the priesthood, I'm going to give you a pattern that reflects for you what the forever presence of God is going to be like when I, when I return, when I come in the person of my son. So this tabernacle, which means tent, that they were to build in the middle of the wilderness and to send some priests over to commune with God on behalf of the people, it was a mere copy and shadow. Do you see that in verse 5? It was a copy and a shadow of, a, of the heavenly realities that would one day be made available to all of God's people through God's Son. Did you know God never intended for His final plan to be for just a few select people to commune with God in a tent while everybody else stood outside? 
I, I am not the only person at North Roanoke Baptist Church who's supposed to commune with Jesus. It's not just me and Brother Paul and Sister Lynn and Brother Hope and Brother Ethan. Every one of us, through the blood of Jesus, has access to commune with God. We don't go over to some little tent and let the holy rollers go in and everybody else gets left out. That was never God's full and final plan. His plan has always been to restore His broken creation Back to the way it had been in the garden before the fall when every person who lived in the garden, now we didn't get very far with people living in the garden because Adam and Eve messed it up, right? But the plan was for them to be in the garden and to populate it with a bunch of little worshipers and to cultivate and keep the garden until the garden overspread the earth and there were just worshipers communing with God all over the globe. The whole world was supposed to be the sanctuary of the presence of God, not some little tent in the middle of the wilderness. And the people of God here in Hebrews are like, let's go back to a tent in the wilderness and sacrifice some animals. And he's like, what in the world are you talking about? Jesus is the sacrifice. And if you run to him in repentance and faith, you find an entire community of people committed to knowing and enjoying and loving God. Knowing God, knowing the nearness of God is possible not just in a little tent. It's possible everywhere because of the gospel. Repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and run to him and know the nearness of God. The temporary has given way to the forever and the true because Jesus has come. And Jesus is serving right now as your high priest in the presence of God. Jesus is no temporary solution. He is the living and sure hope of total and forever salvation. Life lived in God's presence now and forevermore. That's what Jesus does. The whole earth will be full of his glory. There will be a day when in the new heavens and the new earth, the only people on the planet will owe their lives to Jesus and they will declare his worth forevermore. We know this is true because of what we read in verses 6 through 13. Jesus secures the better promises of the new and forever covenant. We can draw near to God through Jesus because he has, look at verse 6, a more excellent or superior ministry than that of the Old Covenant priests. His ministry is better than any Old Testament priest because his priesthood is based on a better covenant with much better promises. The Old Covenant showed us that we needed a solution to our sins. We just had to keep sacrificing animals. We needed a way to be forgiven and delivered and restored and healed. The new covenant doesn't show us that we need a solution. It is the solution. We can be saved through the bloody and sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. Verse 7 makes a simple argument. If the old covenant had been faultless in terms of its ability to reconcile fallen sinners to a holy God then God would not have sought for or required a second and better covenant. Why do we have a new covenant? Because the old covenant was not working. I can almost hear someone, I can hear my dad saying this uh, in his best southern voice, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You ever heard that one? It was broken. Now the, the fault of the old covenant was not the old covenant, of course, it was the people. The people couldn't keep it. In fact, that's what we read in verse 8. 
finding fault with them. The old covenant was not bad in of itself. It did its job very well. It revealed how bad off we really are without Jesus in our place. It reveals how dependent we are upon God to do for us what we would not do and could not do for ourselves. So if you keep running back to a system, listen closely, church. I know none of you are trying to run back to sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats. But if we run back, if we keep running back to a system of trying to cover up our sin rather than confessing it, do we really understand what we've gotten in Jesus? We need to turn from our sin and rejoice in the amazing grace that we have through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if that's not the pattern of your life, if you try to bury and cover your sin rather than confess it and release it and live in harmony with brothers and sisters, then you may not yet understand the gospel. We have nothing to hide if we belong to Jesus. In verses 8 through 12, Hebrews quotes the promise of the new covenant found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And he does this to prove that even the Old Testament told us that a new covenant with better promises was coming. We needed a new covenant because we were powerless to overcome our sin and keep the law. Verse 8 says, finding fault with them. Not finding fault with the covenant, but finding fault with the people of God. The problem was the people of Israel and the people of Judah. By stressing the disobedience of the Israelites, the author is calling to our attention the moral responsibility for their refusal to do the will of God. The Bible is clear. Salvation is entirely a work of God. Sin is entirely the responsibility of man. We are the ones who messed it up. Time and again, God gave the Israelites an opportunity to turn to Him, didn't He? Over and over again, come to me, come to me, come to me. Oh God, we're sorry, we're going to come to you. And then the next thing you know, they're doing idolatry all over again. God was faithful to His people. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt, but they were faithless. We needed a better covenant, a covenant that would lead us to obey from the heart. A covenant where God himself would put within our hearts, do you see it in verse 10? His law, he would put his law in our minds and our hearts so that our hearts would no longer delight in sin, but rather would delight in honoring God, our maker and our king. I think of it like this, I I am a At least I try to be a basketball coach. I love basketball. It's my favorite sport. And it's one of those games that it's got to get inside of you for you to play it correctly. And when you you teach little kids the game, it doesn't matter how well you've coached them, something happens when the game comes on and everything you've taught them goes out of their brains. And so they need an external prod, particularly when they're younger, They need someone coaching them, mentoring them, sometimes hollering at them, set the pick, go down low, get the rebound, box out, because if you don't, they just flutter around and look at the ball and like, I forgot everything you told me. And so these external prods toward being successful are very helpful, but that's not what God wants for us with the new covenant. He wants the law not to just stand outside of us and be yelling at us over and over again. He wants us to internalize it. You don't play good basketball until you internalize the game. 
You don't really glorify God and honor Him until you internalize who He is and it becomes a part of who you are. And the new covenant promise of God is not that you just go to church and do better and try harder. It's that God changes you from the inside out and He puts His law and His precepts and His commands inside of you and you find joy in doing what glorifies and honors God. Only then is verse 10. Would God be their God? And would we be His people? The promise of the new covenant comes from Jeremiah, a prophet. Do you remember Jeremiah? He spent his whole ministry warning Judah not to do what her sister Israel had done. Not to be idolatrous. Not to fall away from God. And he said, if you would just repent of your sin, God will spare you the curses that you deserve. He will spare you the judgment you deserve. But they did not repent. And they were overtaken by Babylon. Try as they might, even the people that God revealed himself to in the tabernacle, in the, ta- in the temple, and in his word, and through the prophet Jeremiah, they would not fulfill their covenant responsibilities. Until Jesus comes, the history of Israel and Judah is mostly a history of compromise, of cover-up, of corruption and idolatry. In Deuteronomy, God promises, curses, For those who disobey his law. And curses are what the people of Israel received. That's what is meant by verse 9. When we read that Israel and Judah did not continue in my covenant. Do you see that in verse 9? They did not continue in my covenant. So God did not care for them. God allowed Israel and Judah to face the just consequences of disobedience. He allowed foreign powers, Assyria and Babylon, to bring his just judgment on Judah and Israel. But if all Judah and Israel were to get were the curses that they deserve as covenant breakers, how would God keep his promise to have a people for himself? How would God keep His promise to have a world filled with worshipers to the ends of the earth as anticipated in the garden? How would God keep His promises to Adam and Noah and Abraham and David? Promises of a forever people filling the world under the forever rule of God's forever King as long as sinners like us kept getting in the way and breaking the covenant. How was God going to keep His promise? We needed a better covenant. We needed a new covenant. We needed a covenant that though we failed to keep the covenant, God kept the covenant for us through His Son. That's right. If we were going to be God's people and God was going to have a people on the planet earth from sea to shining sea, it would have to be the work of God. God would have to do it. Look at the God-centered language that we see in verses 8 through 12. You see, the new covenant is launched and kept by God himself. Look at verse 8. I will effect a new covenant. Verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds. Verse 10. And I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. I will be merciful to their iniquities. Verse 12. I will remember their sins no more. Verse 12. And I know it's the 830 service and I know it's early, but if that doesn't get you a little bit excited. Anybody here got some iniquities? That you need God to forget? Anybody in here got some sins that you need God to remember no more? In the new covenant of the blood of Jesus, that is what he promises to do. 
in the new covenant, God does for us through Jesus what the old covenant says we could never do for ourselves. We couldn't be God's people, verse 10. We could not know Him, verse 11, except that God made a new covenant, a new way, and He did what we could not do through Jesus and offered Him as a sacrifice accepted in the heavens so that our sins could be washed as white as snow. For that reason, verse 13 tells us there's no going back to trying to cover up and hide our sins anymore. Like your VCR sitting in your attic, the old covenant is obsolete. We have no need to cover our sins or hide them because Jesus' death proves that we are all wretched sinners. Are you a wretched sinner? Yes, you are. We are all wretched sinners with no hope apart from God. But Daniel, I didn't murder anybody. Have you ever been angry at somebody? Jesus says, it's like you're a murderer. But I've never had an affair or cheated on my wife or my husband. Have you ever looked on another person with lust in your eyes? It's like you've committed adultery, Jesus says. To draw near to God, to know Him, verse 12, as our God, we've got to come through Jesus because we deserved death, hell, and damnation forever. But Jesus canceled it with His blood. Jesus says the new covenant comes through His death. He says this at the Last Supper when he's with his disciples, and he takes the cup, and he says the cup represents the blood that he's going to shed on the cross. And he says this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant, the new promises of God in my blood, the promise of full and forever forgiveness through Jesus' bloody death. It is the bloody death of Jesus, not our goodness, that secures for us the promises of God. And praise God, when Jesus ushered in the new covenant, he put an end to the old. His death in my place is enough. Someone might ask a very good question, but what about all those curses that I deserve for all the times that I sinned against God? What about the alienation from the presence of God that I deserve? What about the devastation and the despair and the death? And here's the amazing answer. The curses that you deserved for your sin, for breaking the law, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. Jesus puts an end to the old covenant's demand for a curse of your life by shedding his own blood. The price of sin is death and Jesus has died in the place of those who will repent of their sin and trust in him. The curses we deserve have been heaped upon Jesus. As Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed who is, ev- is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And because Jesus has given himself to die in our place, God is merciful to all who trust in him. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Are you thankful for the mercy of Christ? Are you thankful you don't get what you deserve through the blood of Jesus? When when you really understand what you have through Jesus, it produces in your heart a remarkable confidence to be honest about your sin and to really repent of your sin and to be transformed by the overwhelming, life-altering grace of God. God knows our sins, but if you belong to Christ, He does not remember them. Which means you don't have to run around and put on a plastic smile and pretend that you're better than you are. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of honesty. 
that is possible because Jesus died for me. It's a life of gratitude for the forgiveness we found in Christ. It's a life of desperation to glorify the one who shed his blood to make me clean. When we really believe that Jesus has died for our sins once and for all, we are liberated, church. We are free to confess our sins and to turn from them knowing Jesus paid for them and truly believing that if we're in Christ, God does not see us as rebels deserving of death, but as sons and daughters, children of the Father, welcomed and adopted and accepted and forgiven and washed and healed and cleansed and restored and refreshed and qualified to draw near to God through the blood of Jesus, the curse has been taken through the blood of my King. He already lived the perfect life. He has put His law in my heart. He is my God and I am His. Do you believe that is possible all and only because of Jesus? If you do, then I want to encourage you to resonate with this closing illustration of what it looks like to stake all your life on the promise of a new covenant through the blood of Jesus. Hopeful. In the midst of waves of disbelief, fear, and shock, I distinctly remember feeling hopeful for a moment. A baby would love you no matter what, I thought to myself. Oh, how desperately I needed to feel loved unconditionally. And although I was barely three months into my freshman year at Roanoke College, just 19 years old, I was facing the one thing I had dreamed of most as a little girl, becoming a mother. My hope evaporated when my own mother's immediate authoritative response was, well, you're not having it. Because I feared losing her love and approval, tragically, I obeyed, even though I was a legal adult. My father had abruptly abandoned our family two years prior then moved across the country to start a new life. I was hurt beyond my own comprehension by his decision and already felt unlovable and unwanted. Now I was a pregnant teenager, told by my baby's grandmother that my only sensible choice was to do something unimaginable. I can't tell you what day it was, the day I let a stranger take my baby's life. I had prayed the baby was somehow gone so I wouldn't have to go through with this horror and I blinked in disbelief at the ultrasound screen at the clinic in a detached fog. This was real, and an already lost and hurting girl was about to make a mistake that would haunt me for decades. My mother had firmly said that no one else, including my father, brother, and four grandparents needed to know. It would just be our secret, and we wouldn't dwell on it after asking God for forgiveness. I have hidden my unrelenting shame, my unbearable grief, these last 20 years. I felt everyone would rightfully despise me if they knew what I had done. My name is Jessica Shawner, and I am a child of God. He gave his one and only son for even me, a sinner. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin, and God did not end my story there because he is my good, good father. He is always for us. In the middle of the night on October 10th, 2014, I had emergency surgery to remove both my left fallopian tube and my precious five-week-old baby trapped inside it. I received two pints of blood to keep me alive as I was severely bleeding internally. When I went into surgery, I knew I might wake up unable to conceive children again 
depending on what needed to be done to save my life. My sweet daughters were only five and three and a half, and earlier that week before getting deathly sick, I had hoped to tell them we were having another baby, something they asked for often. The ectopic pregnancy resurfaced a tidal wave of suppressed emotions, flashbacks, and guilt from my abortion. This time, I had held Kenton's hand and expectantly looked at the ultrasound screen in the ER, desperately hoping our baby was somehow in my uterus where it needed to be to survive and grow. The surgery and invasiveness of it all paralleled my abortion in ways I never expected to feel again, and I didn't know what God was trying to tell me. Sadly, for months, I mistakenly thought, this must be it. The punishment I'd feared was coming my way for years. God must have finally realized what I already believed to be true. I wasn't good enough. I didn't deserve to be loved. I didn't deserve to be a mother, because what mother could ever do what I had done? The voices in my head and heart spewed venom at me, and I once again felt like that broken, unlovable, 19-year-old girl again. I was overwhelmed with grief and guilt several months after the ectopic, and I finally had to tell several people my secret. My incredible husband already knew my story before we got married. Of course, I had to give him the chance to run and abandon such a mess of a woman. But God was not going to let me lose him, and he has always shown nothing but love and support in 12 years of marriage as I heal from so many deep scars. I told my dear friend who is in church ministry because I had to see if she could possibly still love her Christian friend who had done such a horrific thing. She lovingly guided me in my path toward healing because she said, if you think that abortion is somehow the one thing the cross doesn't cover and forgive, then you're wrong. I'm so sorry you went through that. It made a tremendous impact to have another woman, mother, and faithful Christ follower show me love in that moment instead of condemnation, shame, or disgust. It felt a tiny bit easier to say my abortion out loud now. On July 28, 2015, our wedding anniversary, God worked an absolute miracle. It was very unlikely for me to get pregnant again with only one fallopian tube, but God said, watch me. He carried me through a very anxiety-ridden pregnancy and postpartum depression as I suffered a great deal of trauma from the ectopic and felt that at any moment this sweet baby boy could break or vanish. My precious Jack Victor, whose name means God is gracious and conqueror, was born with a huge true knot in his umbilical cord. These occur in less than 2% of pregnancies, and it could have easily caused brain damage or death. He was born perfectly healthy with no sign of distress. That knot was a symbol of God's infinite love, his power, his ability to overcome any physical or emotional obstacle, and his unending mercy. He showed me once again that he was in control and that he had a purpose and a plan for Jack and for me in this fallen world. God holds fast even when we are unraveling. Our God is merciful. My wretched sin is paid in full through Jesus' death on the cross, and I give him the glory in this humble offering. My broken silence, confessing that I cannot be completely free until I am free of the fear of man and earthly judgment or ridicule. I am free indeed. God knew that my heart's greatest desire was to become a mother, and had he punished me for my sin by preventing future children, I wouldn't be who I am becoming. My precious babies and devoted husband sanctify, refine, and love me like no one else ever has in my lifetime. 
they show me Jesus. I see his unwavering, steadfast love in the way they love and accept me. But even without my beloved family, I am finally believing the gorgeous, glorious truth that I am a child of God. I am worthy of love, and I have so much love to give. I am hopeful. That's what it looks like to be a child of God. What's your thing this morning? Do you believe that God would forgive it? Do you believe that the blood of Jesus is enough? I want to say two things in response to that video. One, if you see that and your reaction is, how dare she? You don't know the grace of God. And you don't know the depth of your own sin. And it's quite possible that you need to be saved. And the second thing I want to say is, we all have a testimony if we're in Christ. Paul's testimony before kings was that he had been a persecutor of the church and he would have been fined for Christians to die before he was gloriously changed. David was a murderer. Solomon was a philanderer. God can rewrite your story through the blood of his son. We've been born again to a living hope that is based on better promises through a better covenant, through a better priest who ministers for us in the heavenlies. If you don't know the hope that we just heard about, then as we stand and sing, I want to invite you to come and know Jesus today. If you stand in condemnation of people like Jessica and say they could never know God or be used by God, then I want to invite you to come today and repent of your self-righteousness. There's a world out there that's right where Jessica's been. And the hope that they need is not that we would stand in condemnation of them, but that they would encounter Christ who was condemned so that they didn't have to be. Let's be a church that leads broken sinners to a healing Savior as we stand and sing together.